Well, it's uh, so neat to hear those updates from Ian. Uh, and so if you would like, you can um, join the Facebook group called JRCC Friends. Just search that up on your phone, and Ian posted there, and he'll post updates as he's able to uh, on that. This is from a family uh, that uh, Ian and Kathy hosted in their home, so we got to know their daughter, Danica and Irina, uh, while they were here for a number of months this spring. And so it's a real privilege to stay connected with them prayerfully and in, in other ways. So uh, my name's Brad. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, I'm part of the teaching and the leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And it's a pleasure to have you with us uh, just as we continue in our summer teaching series in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah called The New Exodus. And we are rounding the corner uh, toward completing the book of Ezra, Nehemiah. And uh, just a spoiler alert, the book ends on a low note, not a high note. So like today is like the high point, and then there's still two weeks left. Pastor Wally will preach next weekend, and then I'll preach on the long weekend. Uh, and the book kind of goes downhill from here. So just, a, you know, as a, as a spoiler alert for you, uh, sorry to end your summer on a downer note, but if you really want to end your summer on a downer note, tell a student next to you that school is coming quickly and uh, that uh, we are very close into this. You can sense it in the air. The parking lot at Staples is a little fuller than it is at other times of year. The ads and commercials on TV and in the newspaper, and particularly the Halloween decorations and Christmas trees are out at Costco, so you know it's back to school time uh, in there. But back to school in our rhythm of life in suburban North America actually is that punctuation point, isn't it? It feels like something new is starting, and it feels like there's a rhythm that just sort of starts up again. And even if you aren't personally connected with school, either as an employee or as a parent, there's this rhythm of our corporate life that actually sort of begins again. Certain roads get busier, and you're like, ooh, I shouldn't be driving down this on drop-off or pick-up time. Or certain activities start up again that have been in hiatus mode in the summer months. And so there's a rhythm to our corporate life together uh, in, for example, a city like the one that we live in that is actually influenced by these things where we're doing things all together. And so we're going to talk a little bit today about one of those moments in the life of the ancient people of God. It's a time when uh, they gathered to celebrate, they gathered to look back, and then they gathered also to look forward into the future with anticipation. And they gathered for worship. And so as we're going to look in our text today, we're going to see a little bit of a practical guide or some things that we can observe about that some of the corporate dynamics of our life together as a worshiping community uh, with respect to two things, celebration and also worship. And so if you have your Bibles or your devices, open them up to Nehemiah chapter 12. And Nehemiah chapter 12 records this moment uh, where after a long period of effort and initiative, they dedicate the wall 
uh, which they'd been working at building around the city of Jerusalem. There's a few dedication moments and celebration points that come in the life of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. They celebrate when they get the foundation laid. They celebrate when the temple is completed. And now they celebrate when the wall is completed. And just a quick recap sort of of where we are in terms of biblical history. So if you read through Uh, the uh, Hebrew scriptures, you get to these sort of high point moments. So we have one of those in perhaps the kingship of David and Solomon, where uh, the ancient people of God are really doing well from their perspective. But then we have this sort of ebbing away of that sense of connectivity with God and with obedience to God. And despite repeated warnings by the prophets, uh, things go downhill over a number of generations. And so the people are displaced from their homeland to uh, Babylon and to Assyria. And they spend almost two generations in these places under foreign leadership. And then they remember or they are reminded by the prophets of God's promises to them, particularly the promise that God made through the prophet Jeremiah that they're going to be called back to their land. And they think to themselves, how could that be? Like what in the world would change the situation geopolitically and otherwise that would let us go back? And supernaturally, God moves and softens the heart of not one, but two foreign kings and allows the people, those who want to, to go back. And not only do the kings allow them to go back, but the the rulers actually say, you know what, we're going to help fund this project. And so they contribute and open the treasury towards rebuilding the wall of the city and the temple. And so some of the people, but not all of them, go back. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which is really a unified account of this going back in several waves, recounts their progress, their opposition, and ultimately the success that they have in rebuilding a more modest version of the temple and the city of Jerusalem. So in Nehemiah chapter 12, Nehemiah is the governor of Judah, and he records this massive moment, like this high point of worship and celebration. And this is this moment as they've come back together and they've worked hard at re-rhythming their life together. It's like a new beginning, like a sort of September fresh start moment for them. And as we read and look at this text, we want to ask the question, not just, okay, so they had a little bit of a worship celebration. We want to ask the question, what are the things that we can draw that we could learn and understand about what it means to celebrate well and what it means for us uh, in our life together as a worshiping community. So in Nehemiah chapter 12, the first 26 verses list those who carried out duties of leadership uh, under as priests and as Levites, those who were responsible for the religious life and worshiping life together. Uh, and then the last three verses of chapter 12 record how they were able to describe and carry out their duties because of the generosity of the people who provided in bringing in daily supplies uh, of food, particularly for those who led and facilitated worship. And so uh, just pulling back the curtains a little bit, That's still how church budgets work today. That uh, those who are part of the worshiping community um, through your generosity fund 
and, uh, and so we can pay the staff, so we can open the facility up, so that we can do things like provide leadership and invest time in teaching and study. Um, this week, thinking about work of counseling that happened, work of benevolence that happened as a result of that, work in community development, uh, working with some of our partners here, work of global mission that can happen, uh, and investing in next generation ministries. And so uh, that's just some of the things that happened just in the life of Jericho over the course of this past week in our staff's uh, work as a result of their ability to devote themselves to and the gift of time. And so I just want to say thank you personally uh, for that. And on behalf of the staff team, uh, it's a great privilege to serve in that way, and we don't take it lightly. Uh, but the center part of Nehemiah chapter 12 is this moment of celebration, the worship gathering that accompanies it. So I'm going to read from uh, Nehemiah chapter 12. We'll start in verse 27 in the New Living Translation. And I'll read a, a section of the verses. Just a few of them will come up on the screen. And I'm going to leave out some of the longer sections of names because Rose had me read them for her last week. And uh, they're a little bit tricky, uh, but they're sort of part of Nehemiah's memoir and the historical record of what happens uh, here. But let's pick it up in Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27. For the dedication of the new wall of Jerusalem... The Levites throughout the land were asked to come to Jerusalem and assist in the ceremonies. They were to take part in the joyous occasion with their songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. We think lyres are some kind of an ancient guitar stringed instrument. The singers were brought together from the various regions around Jerusalem, from the villages that they lived in. They also came from Beth Gilgal and the rural areas near Jeba and Amasveth. For the singers had built their own settlements around Jerusalem. The city wasn't actually yet big enough for everybody to live in. The priests and the Levites first purified themselves... And then they purified the people and the gates and the wall. And I, Nehemiah, picks up in the first person here again, his like memoir from chapter 7. He says, I led the leaders of Judah to the top of the wall and organized two large choirs to give thanks. One of the choirs proceeded southward along the gates, and then he lists the name of the people. And then came the priests. Some played trumpets. And then he lists some of them. And they used musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God. Ezra, the scribe, whom we talked about last week, led this procession. At the fountain gate, they went straight up the steps of the ascent, the city wall toward the city of David. They passed the house of David, proceeded to the water gate on the east. And then the second choir went northward, the other way around them, to meet them. I followed them together with the other half of the people on top of the wall, past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, past Ephraim gate, the old city gate, past the Ishus gate, the tower of Hanel, and on to the tower of the hundred. And then we continued to the sheep gate and stopped at the guard gate. The two choirs that were giving thanks then proceeded to the temple of God where they took their place, and so did I with the group of leaders who were with me. We went together with the trumpet-playing priests, and he lists them. They played and sang loudly under the direction of Jezrehiah, the choir director, and many sacrifices were offered on that joyous day, for God had given the people cause for great joy. The women and children also participated in the celebration, and the joy of the people of Jerusalem could be heard from far away. So 
this moment is a big deal for this group of people who have gathered. I know the term has been grossly overused over the last number of months, but this is their return to a new normal in their lives after a season of incredible disruption. This is a season of 90 years of work that they are marking. The project has finally been completed, and the work that is done actually deserves to be celebrated in some meaningful way. And so they're ready, and they have this significant public moment where they call everyone together, and they acknowledge the work that's been done, and they acknowledge and focus on God, and that God has been gracious to them as a people. And these kinds of moments of public celebration are are familiar to us. When we have a significant moment as a society, we, we often will get together and celebrate in some way. And often there's music. Uh, sometimes there's some kind of like a corporate uh, thing that we do together, like a, a ritual where we're singing a song that people know, or um, whether it's the cutting of a ribbon at a, a major civic product, project that gets completed or the celebration of a holiday. We have sort of these things that we do when something is done that we get together and we celebrate. And so in this text and and in our culture, celebration can take many forms, but oftentimes celebration involves calling on those who have particular gifts. And often in these moments, we actually call on people who have artistic gifts and creative gifts to take a lead in some way. So whether we commemorate it through like a sculpture or or a song or something gets put in place with the creative arts as a reflection uh, on the past and then this sense of anticipation to move into the future with joy and hope. And so the book of Ezra and Nehemiah actually records some of the ways in which the people of God move into these types of spaces. And we have a couple of examples of this, not just the dedication of the temple, but one of the things that Ezra and Nehemiah do is they say, hey, what about those festivals that we used to celebrate as God's people uh, under Moses and under Davidic leadership? And so they go back and they actually start under Ezra's leadership, digging up some of these things and going, I wonder if we should really celebrate some of these things again. And so they resurrect in the text two ancient festivals. One is the festival of the trumpets, and that's kind of like a New Year's kind of festival where they gather the people together and they say, hey, let's reflect on the things that have happened to us in this year. And then they look forward and they blow the trumpet and say, let's enter into this new year with anticipation and with hope. And so it kind of is the start of their calendar year. And so they resurrect that. And then the other thing that they do that we understand is that they resurrect the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of Shelters or Booths. And you say, well, why in the world is that uh, useful for them? Well, one of the things that that did is that it happened uh, during the fall in the harvest season. And so they would actually go out and they would build these sort of temporary shelters and live in them for a week out in the fields. And it was twofold. One, it was their way of again saying and giving thanks 
to God for this time and this moment of harvest and God's faithfulness in bringing rain and providing for them as an agricultural subsistence culture. But it was also this moment where they looked back and they recalled the time when they wandered in the wilderness after God had released them from oppression and from Egypt and they lived outdoors for a period of 40 years in tents in the wilderness and God had faithfully provided for them during that time. And so this festival was a way of looking back at that and remembering yet again God's faithful provision to God's people. And so as they move into this space in Nehemiah chapter 12, this is just another kind of expression of this movement of thankfulness to God and remembering God's provision. And this movement of remember and celebrate, remember and celebrate, is something that is really baked in to their religious life together. An act of remembrance, looking back, on something that God had done for them and an act of celebration saying thank you. And if you think about it, this pattern or these movements get pulled forward into the New Testament. When we get these little windows or insights into the gatherings of the New Testament followers of Jesus, they're getting together and what are they doing? They're remembering God's saving work in and through Jesus, and they're giving thanks with things like bread and wine. They're remembering and they're celebrating. And so this pattern kind of continues for us. And next week, Pastor Wally is going to lead us through a time of communion as he explores how Ezra actually helps remind the people of some of the other movements, some of the other corporate disciplines that sometimes we don't practice as often, uh, things like confession and repentance. And so we want to kind of keep in front of us as a worshiping community over this week and next some of the practices that help actually define and shape us. And so when we look at this text in Nehemiah chapter 12, the question on the table is like, all right, so if this is a worship gathering, what can be said about worship gatherings other than just a general movement of remembrance and celebration that would be useful or applicable to our day and time? So there's three things maybe to be said about this. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the form of worship, like is there a shape that worship should have, uh, the focus of worship, and then the features of worship. Uh, but before we go there, let's just stop for a moment and actually get our heads around this definition of what is worship. Uh, one of our core values here at Jericho, one of the five core values, we use the phrase holistic worship to describe it. And when we talk about it, we say worship is more of a lifestyle than an event. And so we say the following, quote, worship is the conscious submission to and the adoration of the Creator. It's the humble everyday expression of every part of our lives to Jesus. We desire, both individually and corporately, to express and experience this with a level of intentionality, creativity, cultural relevance, and passion. As we worship, we experience the life-changing power of Jesus Christ, and we are empowered 
by the Spirit to respond as God wills. So that's a little bit of, it's one of the wordier ones of our five core values, and it's the one that sounds actually the most like the Westminster Catechism. Um, So if you're in the mood for a more straightforward definition, I like the one that author Richard Foster gives uh, in his excellent book, The Celebration of Discipline. This is a great book for exploring both the individual practices of the Christian tradition and also the corporate practices, and I'm indebted to many of his thoughts as he's articulated them on worship this morning. But Foster says, you want to define worship? Worship is simply a human response to the divine initiative. And that might seem overly simplistic or it might seem like are we just arguing over words or the order of words, but the order here does matter. Just like the scripture in 1 John reminds us, we only know what love is as human beings because God first took the initiative to demonstrate love toward us. Worship is the same. Worship begins with the character and the action of God. God acts in some way. So God acts, for example, in creation, the beauty of the sunset the other night. And then as humans, we respond to that and think, wow, look at the beauty and the grandeur of that. God, I am grateful for your creative act. God acts. God takes the initiative and saving initiative in Jesus, who lives incarnate as our example, dies as our substitute, is raised to life as a victor over death and the grave, and we respond in and by faith, saying yes and amen. I choose to believe that God has acted in Christ and to live in accordance and in faith with that proclamation. And maybe for you, if you're a person who is seeking or exploring and you're not sure about any of this whole Jesus business or church business, that might be where you park it for this morning. And you just think to yourself, all right, how has God acted in the world and in my life? And then the question is, what is the appropriate response to that? Have you responded in any way What are the barriers to you responding to the way in which God has worked and revealed God's self in the world and in your life? And so when we talk about worship, we're talking about the whole of God revealing God's self and then us responding to that. And a lot of the songs that we sing actually reflect that movement But let's talk about a little bit about um, musical worship for a moment. You might say, well, okay, Brad, but like when it comes to a gathering like this, or musical worship or worship gathering, doesn't the Bible give us a little bit more to go on than just like God respond, God initiates, and we respond? Uh, I mean, in Nehemiah 12, yes, we have all kinds of musical instruments. We have people praying. We have the sacrificial system from the Old Testament in full swing. And so when we're looking at uh, the scriptures, one of the questions for us to ask is, is there any kind of directive on the form that our worship should take? And it's interesting that the incredible diversity of forms that 
uh, gathered worship takes in the scriptures. And the Bible is actually not overly prescriptive with respect to the form worship might take or mandatory, quote-unquote, elements that need to be included. We get a whole range of things that are included. Very often, it's things like singing, things like praying. Uh, in, the, in the book of Acts, we see Paul going down and meeting with a group of women uh, Philippian, in the city of Philippi, and they are gathering for corporate prayer by the river. Uh, we get things like teaching when people are gathered, encouraging one another. Hebrews talks about that. Uh, we talk, there's uh, talk of in, encouraging meals together, feasting. These are all mentioned as parts of uh, a gathering which is constituted for the purpose of worship. And so this is one of the reasons why you can go to different places in the world. You can touch down at different moments in history. You can visit different expressions of uh, the body of Christ. You can go to an Orthodox gathering like St. Herman's of Alaska up on 72nd. You can go to a large charismatic church uh, that would be exuberant in a place like Nigeria. You could go to St. Nicholas here in Langley. You could go to a home church in someone's living room, and you'll have a vastly different experience, but they'll all be using the term, we're here for worship and to worship God. And different traditions and practices have evolved and different ways uh, and meeting different needs in different times. And so one of the things that I think we need to pay attention to then is that it, it isn't as helpful for us to go to places like Nehemiah chapter 12 or other places looking for a strict order of worship. Because if we do that, then we'll be like, all right, Nehemiah 12. One choir, as they come in, should go clockwise. One should go counterclockwise. They're going to meet, come up the middle for worship. Like, that's not quite what Nehemiah and other texts are after here. Or people going like, okay, we need to resurrect and rebuild a lyre. Whatever the lyre was, we need to find that because it's named when people are worshiping. So it's not that. There's a sense of liberty in this that allows us to seek out ways that we can maximize our connection with God in ways that are congruent with our culture and will help foster that sense of connectivity with God and with others. And so the form of worship, I would argue, is fairly flexible from a scriptural perspective. And so here at Jericho, uh, we take some of the best things that we see from both the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament, and we seek to express this, again, in that language of our core value with intentionality. So like why we do certain things. We seek to be creative. We seek with cultural relevance and passion so that as we gather, we experience the life-changing power of Jesus Christ and we are empowered by the Spirit to respond as God wills. And so about form in worship, I would say this. Form is not inconsequential, but it is not primary when it comes to worship. The focus, however, is the primary thing. So the form of worship, there's, there's some flexibility, but the focus of worship is needing to be consistent. So note here in Nehemiah the distinction between the worship gathering 
and just a celebration of a completion of a public works project. There's a gathering, there's a switch that happens here where they begin to move into this place where their focus isn't on the wall, it isn't on the builders, it isn't on Ezra and Nehemiah, oh, thank you for your leadership. The focus shifts and it is on God. And so the focus of our worship matters. The object of our worship is always to be on God. It's not to be when we come into a space like this on how large or small, skilled or poor the band is. It's not to be on, well, I prefer hymns or choruses, or I like it if the preacher is funnier, or the coffee is weaker or stronger than it was last week. When you come into this space, the focus begins to shift, and we move into that space where we say, I'm here to enter into God's gates with thanksgiving. I'm coming to his courts with praise, to know that the Lord is God. It is he has made us and not we ourselves. Our purpose when we gather is to lift up the name of Jesus. And we believe that when we lift up the name of Jesus, when we focus our eyes, our hearts collectively on Jesus and on all that God has done for us and with us, that, that moves us to that place of celebration and praise and thanksgiving. And so that's what gathered worship is about. The focus is to be on the Lord. And so while we talk about focus, just a word of caution, because sometimes I'll hear people saying like, well, that's fine, but like I've, I really experience God in worship when I serve, like when I'm serving people who are on the margins or are poor, or well, my worship is to when I help out in, in kids' ministry. And I want to make a distinction for us here that those things, uh, while they are a great response to God and to other people, those fall under the category of service, not necessarily worship. Worship is that which is directed Godward or upward. Service is that which flows out of our response and focuses on outward or toward others. And one of the habits, bad habits, that evangelicals have is that they spend so much time serving that they actually neglect worshiping. And so there's a balance that needs to happen there. And, and this is particularly a challenge for those of us who work in Christian ministry or Christian spaces, like Christian schools or universities, because sometimes we actually think, oh, we're around God's work enough that we actually don't need to engage in worship or in a worshiping community. And so that's also why I would say I don't want to see you only showing up here at Jericho when you're scheduled to serve. That's going to develop one part of your spiritual muscle, but it's going to atrophy the worship part of your spiritual muscle. So spiritual, uh, service should flow out of our worship, not replace it. So just a word of caution there, just to consider as you schedule and think about where your calendar falls and is, looks like this fall, I would say just don't let activity overtake adoration in any way. It's, it's a bad habit that is really easy to fall into. 
All right, so we've talked about the form of worship, the focus of worship. Uh, Now let's just talk a little bit about uh, fleshing out the form, some features of worship. And if you're a note-taker, there's five of them that I'll touch on just very, very briefly. And the first one is a sense of holy expectancy. See, when we're talking about worship, we're talking about an encounter with the living God. We're not talking about, oh, I go to the place where the church gathers so that I can get together with my friends or sing songs that I like or hear a little pep talk every week. And in this text, I actually find it interesting. They name the towns where the Levites are and the people are coming from. And these are not particularly close. They're eight miles out of Jerusalem, five miles out. And so these people, as they come for this worship gathering, they come, uh, it's a sacrifice for them to come. And they come with this sense of expectancy and joy. They expect that they are going to meet with God and to remember God's goodness and to celebrate. And I think one of the things that happens in our modern lives is that we can begin to identify a weekend worship gathering as kind of an inconvenient intrusion into our calendars. If our kids need a nap during this time, or we're out too late on a Saturday, or we're feeling peopled out, we just say, you know what, I'll just stay home. But this actually lacks a robust understanding of what happens in and the purpose of corporate worship. We're here to meet collectively and personally with God. And that can happen in a variety of ways, absolutely. But on Sundays, when the worship in song team gets up early, and when I come early, I pray over every chair, pray over you by name if I remember or know where you're sometimes sitting. And and I pray and I say, God, would you meet with this person today as we gather? Would you speak healing? Would you speak hope into their life? Restore some of those places that feel discouraged and broken. And so we design these mornings with your uh, anticipation and your presence in, in mind. And one of the things that you notice in this text in Nehemiah chapter 12, and Pastor Wally's going to pick up on it a little bit more next week, but as the people come together, the text says that there's a formal time of readying themselves. They're purifying themselves. They're cleansing themselves. And we did this actually Uh, This morning, upstairs, when we gathered, every week we gather, and you're more than welcome to join us for prayer from 9.45 till 10.15. We just said, God, we want to be in a place of personal readiness to meet with you. And so the question that, that I want us to wrestle with is, what process did you go through to get ready to meet with God this morning? And it's not a criticism by any means if that's a new thought for you. Maybe phrasing it another way is like, what is it that you expect or anticipate will happen on a Sunday morning when we gather? And if you expect a nice little pep talk or say hello to people, 
that's not wrong, but again, that's not worship. Worship is an encounter with the living God. And all too often, when people say to me, well, I just didn't really get anything out of a Sunday. And there might be whole seasons in your life where that's true, just to, so you're aware of that reality. One of the things that I have found when, when that's been true of me is that I've missed or skipped this sense of holy expectancy. So, let me make a couple of suggestions for you on that front. One of them would be just to cultivate that when you get up on a sunny morning and just say, all right, God, I want to be in a place today where I'm ready as I gather with people to meet you. Another habit that you might put in place is just finding your way in a few minutes early. Uh, Ron and the team at 1025 just started playing music. And maybe that for you is a time when you come in and you would feel more ready to meet with God if you just had a little bit of a time of kind of quieting and readying your heart. Now, granted, there'll be people coming in, meeting each other, so there'll be noise in the background. Uh, and we're not, we're not advocating for, like, silence in the sanctuary so that we can all get ready to meet with God. But just that sense of that time window, like instead of sort of rushing to find your seat, maybe you take time to get your coffee and ready yourself and just say, all right, God, I'm here. Would you speak to me today? Just, just try it for a little season and see, does it make a difference for you in this area of holy expectancy? So that's one of the features of our worship is holy expectancy. Second thing I would say is a, the language of worship. And this is language of not I, but we when we gather. Because there are times uh, throughout the week where you are gathering and you're meeting either just personally with God uh, and you're in the scripture or you're praying as you're out for a walk or you're meeting with other people uh, in other settings. But part of corporate worship is this gathering together then with other people whose hearts desire to be knit together in a deep inward fellowship by the power of the Holy Spirit. I love what Martin Luther said of his experience of individual spiritual practices versus the corporate gathering. Luther said this, quote, At my home, in my own house, there is not warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered, a fire is kindled in my heart, and it breaks its way through. And, and I want you, don't hear what I'm not saying, this is not a critique of people who are online or who are at home watching. This is just simply to say that when we gather corporately and we choose collectively to focus our hearts and our eyes on Jesus and lift up the name of Jesus, it knits us together in fellowship and connectivity with one another as well as with God. Thomas Kelly said it this way, a quickening presence, meaning the presence of God, pervades us, breaking down some part of the special privacy and isolation of our individual lives. An objective and dynamic presence of God's Spirit enfolds us all, nourishes our souls, speaks glad, unutterable comfort with us, quickens us in our depths, 
that had before been slumbering. And friends, I can think of so many times in my life where I have come into a gathering and been like, all right, another Sunday. (sighs) But somehow God has met me in that space and renewed something in me, even if just by a little bit, whether it was through a song, through a prayer that somebody prayed for me, through something in the word, or through some connection that happened. And I recognize again, I need that in my life. I need to be encouraged, to be nourished, to be quickened in my remembrance of God's love, God's presence, and God's power. And so I just encourage you to just make that a regular habit in your life. And, and be aware and attentive of the language of this is this, the time and the place in your week for the language of we, not I. Third sense, holy expectancy, not I but we. Third feature of corporate worship that we see is praise, musical praise. When you trace the gathering of God's people together through the Old and the New Testaments, there's this repeated announcement of an invitation to sing. The Psalms invite us to sing to the Lord. And this is part of Uh, Nehemiah's expression here as well. And they actually have whole categories of people that are devoted to the skill and the leadership of musical worship in, in service of God and others. And that's part of the reason why every weekend when we gather, we devote a significant time to musical worship. It Musical worship gives voice to us to express some of the things to God and about God that we are thinking and feeling. And sometimes we just need to acknowledge that that's aspirational, that that's a prayer, but we're not necessarily in that space. We're like, I don't know if this is true. Can I really sing this song today? And so that's all right. You need to just acknowledge that and and say, you know what, I'm not being disingenuous. Can you offer a prayer to the Lord and say, God, I believe, help thou my unbelief. I want to want to believe the things about you that are true or that we're singing. And this is one of the reasons why we have prayer ministry every week at Jericho. Uh, and, and at the end of our time, when we respond in musical worship, we'll have uh, Pastor Wally and myself and Sylvia at the back there. Because sometimes, you know, that place of musical worship isn't necessarily the most powerful thing for you. You might need something else in that morning. And so we want to meet you and, be, and lift you and get, get you carried along by the gathered community. We want to continue to allow for you to process your lived experience. So features of worship, we sing, we gather corporately, we come with holy expectancy, and um, we are not just coming as brains on a stick or vocal cords. We are not disembodied voice boxes just singing or simply people with big feelings that get caught up in the vibe of being in a room with good music. One of the things in the pictures that we get from the scriptures is this sense of worship is an embodied, engaged expression. And so, yes, we are invited to engage our minds in it. We are also in invited to engage our bodies so that we are wholehearted and also authentic in our worship. Part of their worship here was this marching along the walls 
and then singing and celebrating, shouting, putting their whole selves into it, dancing before the Lord. They engage their bodies in worship. And if you trace a lot of the words that are used in Scripture, uh, even the word that we translate worship actually means to, to prostrate oneself, to bow down in worship. The word bless, when, when someone says, bless the Lord, or I will bless the Lord, that means to kneel. There are lots of verses that talk about raising our hands in worship to God. And this is harder for some of us than others. But maybe for you, it might just be a place where you try to move into that space a little bit. You may not have grown up or experienced or uh, had that as been part of your Christian tradition, people raising their hands or people with a more exuberance in worship. And we, we definitely want to create space for that here in, in this place. But maybe for you, you just want to try a little bit. So you'll notice sometimes people will put their hands open like this out in front of them. And sometimes that can be a posture of just expectancy, saying, God, I want to demonstrate with my body that I'm, I want to receive something from you. When someone's going to give you something, you put your hands out to receive it. Or you think about when you're in a space with other people who are like declaring something to be true and it just feels like, yes, I want to do something like this, you know? Uh, raise my hands in worship. Oftentimes I'll just raise my hand and say, oh, God, I'm in agreement with this song. I declare that you are Lord and King over heaven and earth. And so I want you to feel just a sense of liberty here at Jericho to express that in some way. Maybe you feel that you want to kneel where you're at. Or maybe uh, there's other ways that, that you want to express that. It can be involving our bodies in the experience of remembering and celebrating can be a powerful way that we engage uh, in, in worship. It's why some of the high church traditions invite kneeling corporately at different times during the gathering. And finally, the function of gathered worship is is really so that as we gather and then when we disperse from that gathering, we actually walk in and we walk out different than when we came. We are invited and one of the functions of gathered worship is holy obedience. If worship, Foster says, does not propel us to greater obedience to God, it has not been worship. Does you and I no good come in sing this song, pray this prayer, listen, and go away unchanged. And so the way that we talk about this at Jericho is we say we, we teach and we worship with transformation, not just information in mind. We, we ask things of you. We challenge you to grow, to take steps, to think, to make changes in your life because we believe that God, by God's Spirit, is present doing a work in your life and in our midst as we celebrate and as we remember. And so Ron and the team are going to come and we're going to prepare to respond in musical worship because it's a little bit like one of those practices like generosity. You say, well, how do I actually grow in generosity? You just start being generous. How do I grow in my experience and practice of exercising worship? You just start worshiping. <laughs> start engaging in that expression of remembering and celebrating 
who God is. And so as we move into that place, I want to just ask a question for reflection and for action. And that is, what is an action step that you can take that you might be assisted in more fully engaging in corporate worship in a meaningful, transformative way? Maybe for you, when you come into a space like this, you just find yourself horribly distracted in some way. Maybe it's the noise from kids or kids at the ridge. And so maybe a practice for you might be saying, instead of being like, ah, now I can't, I hear those kids making noise. Now I can't worship God in a meaningful way. Maybe could you take that and turn it into a prayer of gratitude and say, God, I'm just grateful as I hear the noise of those children that we are a church that has multiple generations, young, young adults, old individuals who are gathering together to meet with you. Thank you for that generation. Maybe for you, you need to work a little bit on uh, a critical spirit that has developed. And when songs go up on them, you're like, oh, we sang that song too many times. Or, oh, we're probably going to sing that song too many times for my personal liking. Why don't we sing new songs? Or others are like, why don't we sing too many new songs? I can't keep up with this. You get the point. We all have personal perspectives that we bring in to worship. But what would it look like for you just to say, you know what, God, I recognize those personal perspectives, but I'm not here about me. I'm here to meet with you. 